Let's pray. Our holy God, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that you would give us understanding that we lack. Give us a willingness to bend our wills to your word. Give us a delight that can only be found in finding the pearl of great price. Like a treasure hidden in a field, may we be willing to forsake everything to lay hold of you. And so may this sermon stir our affections for you. Would you help us delight and enjoy our good Savior, we pray in his name. Amen. As Queen Mary's reign was coming to an end, the intense persecution on Protestant Christians was raging. In an effort to keep the church wed to the state, Bloody Mary, as she was known, oversaw the martyrdom of 288 Protestant reformers in a span of three years. The likes of John Rogers and John Hooper and Roland Taylor and Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, and Thomas Cranmer. Each of them burned by the Roman Catholic Queen. But for what cause? The central issue was the meaning of the Lord's Supper. J.C. Ryle summarizes it this way. The doctrine in question was the real presence of the body body and the blood of Christ in the consecrated elements of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Did they or did they not believe that the body and blood of Jesus were really, literally, locally, materially present in the forms of bread and wine after the priest consecrated that Uh, made that pronouncement. 288 reformers took their stand upon the weight and the wonder of the Lord's Supper as not being the physical body and blood of Jesus. And it was a stand that would cost them their lives. And to be clear, this was already happening in terms of baptism. Uh, Some 30 years prior to this time, Felix Mance became the first Anabaptist martyr, believing that he would not renounce that baptism was for believers alone. Again, in an effort to keep the church wed to the state. You see, church history would testify to us something that's sadly foreign to most of us, and that is the weight and the wonder of the ordinances. When I say ordinances, I'm talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. These two acts that were ordained by Jesus himself. As one pastor noted, as we are reminded of the brutality of a previous generation surrounding the ordinances, we're also reminded of the superficiality of the current generation as it relates to God's design for the ordinances. You see, there was a time when the meaning of the ordinances was, uh, they were near and dear to many even costing many their lives. And so, my question to you this morning, 
is what is your verdict on the Lord's Supper? I mean, really, how do you think through the Lord's Supper? Is it really all that important? I mean, is it just something that we do once every so often because it's what we're supposed to do? Do you know why we observe the Supper? Do you know why we observe the Lord's Supper the way that we do here at Covenant Life? Is the Lord's Supper meaningful to you? Is it even intended to be meaningful to us? Maybe you're surprised that we've highlighted the Lord's Supper as one of the main ways in which the local church displays the glories of Christ. If you were to read the accounts of the 288 martyrs, what you will walk away with isn't merely a new understanding and a deeper appreciation for their doctrine of these ordinances. What you will walk away with is being overwhelmed at how their understanding of these ordinances really set before everyone else a picture of the worth and the beauty and the renown of Jesus. They weren't separated. And so you could watch the way in which a local church observed and administered the ordinances, baptism and the supper, and it would increase your knowledge and your affections for the Christ who the ordinances pointed to. I mean, that was the intent. Well, today is our third week in our sermon series that we're calling Display. In the way, uh, like prongs to a diamond, so too the local church to Christ intended to display the, the glories and the worth and the renown of Jesus. And much like prongs to a diamond, uh, prongs don't distract from the diamond. They are intended to, to magnify it. And that's our prayer, is that every eye and every heart, both within our church family and without, when they look unto us, their eye would not be drawn to the prong to merely the church, but to the diamond that is Christ. And so we understand that a church gathering and a church rightly baptizing, and as we'll see today, a church rightly administering the Lord's Supper really does showcase the glory of Christ. And so how should the Lord's Supper be administered if we want to honor Christ? Well, we believe that the best way a church honors Christ in the administration of the Lord's Supper is by administering it the way in which the Word tells us to. And so let me tell you, let me just remind you of how we administer. Sometimes you will hear language, we talk about fencing the Lord's Supper, fencing the table. The way in which we administer the Lord's Supper here at Covenant Life, we say that the table at Covenant Life is open to baptized believers who are members of good standing in local churches that preach the same gospel that's preached here. And that those baptized believers who are members are walking in repentance of sin and reconciliation with others. And so that's how we fence, that's how we administer the Lord's Supper here. The question is why? Why do we administer the Lord's Supper in this way? Why do we believe this is the biblically faithful way to administer the Lord's Supper, in large part because of 1 Corinthians 11. 
If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Chapter 11, the 11 is going to be the larger number, usually in the corners, top corners of the Bible. The smaller numbers under that 11 will be the verses. We'll be in verses 23 through 29 this morning. And so before jumping into the particulars, as you're finding your way to 1 Corinthians 11, I think it's helpful for us to understand the context. We've opened up the Bible and we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The first thing that's really helpful just in even studying our Bibles is to know, okay, not just what does a verse say, but what is the context in which that verse sits in? And so we want to ask the question, what's happening surrounding these verses? Because that will safeguard us from wrongly reading and interpreting what these verses mean. From chapters 11 through 14 in 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing three major issues surrounding their conduct whenever they would gather together. And in particular, the issue that he's focused on in this chapter is their conduct as it related to the Lord's Supper. What they were using the Lord's Supper for. They were using it for something other than the Lord had intended. If you were to read the, the surrounding verses, what you'll find is they were using it in some ways to highlight distinctions between the rich and the poor. And so Paul writes and he's condemning these Christians. And he's letting them know, no, 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 this is what you're doing. You're, you're actually at, at a place in which your unity is to be displayed. You're actually highlighting your division. The rich are coming and they're feasting one way and the poor are coming and they're being left out. They're going away hungry. But not, not only was it highlighting the distinctions, the divisions that existed in the church, but it also highlighted just a lack of love and care and consideration one for another. If you were just to look a few verses earlier in chapter 11, verse 17, Paul will write it. This way, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. And so the behavior that Paul is addressing is not commendable behavior. He's trying to correct wrong and corrupt behavior. And so you and I, we will miss the wonder of and the weight of this text if we don't capture the importance that Paul places on loving the church family, seeking the church family's good seeking to do good and giving consideration so that we would consider others as more significant than ourselves. Those are not just kind of Christian ideas. Those are Christian realities that are tied to the Lord's Supper. And so as we did last week with Acts chapter 2 in relation to baptism, so we'll do this week. 1 Corinthians 11 as our guide will allow God's Word to answer a few questions about the Lord's Supper. And the first one that we'll begin with is this. What is the Lord's Supper? What is the Lord's Supper? If you were here last week, I was helped by just thinking about the definition of baptism and really baptism having two parts. One part being the church's act, what the church is doing in baptism, and the other part being the believer's act, what the believer is doing in baptism. And I think in like fashion, as we think about the Lord's Supper, it's good to think that the church is saying something in the Lord's Supper 
as well as the believers that are partaking are saying something. Pastor Bobby Jameson, has, uh, he served us by giving us that framework in, uh, about baptism. He does the same thing with the Lord's Supper. And so after I read the baptism definition last week, I remember saying that was quite clunky, and I wouldn't recommend that being sort of the, the put in your pocket, walk away, so you can remember definition of baptism. Well, I didn't learn anything because I have another clunky definition of the Lord's Supper. And it's this. The Lord's Supper is the church's act of communing with Christ and each other. The church's act of communing with Christ and each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of the bread and wine. Church's act of communing with Christ and each other and commemorating Christ's death by partaking of the bread and wine. And, and then the other clunky part, a believer's act of receiving Christ's benefit and renewing his or her commitment to Christ and his people. Church's act of communing with Christ and one another, commemorating Christ's death by partaking the bread and wine, and the believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing their commitment to Christ and to his people. And when that happens, when those two things happen, the church body is made one. And the church body is marking themselves off as distinct from the world. So, if that's what the Lord's Supper is, how do we get that? Well, Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, Luke 22... Matthew, Mark, Luke, each of them reports and gives us uh, the details surrounding Jesus' last supper with his disciples the night before he died. And each of those accounts speak to Jesus giving thanks, giving them bread, which represented his body, and the cup, which represented his blood. And he would say, Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, do this in remembrance of me. Well, 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest records that we have that the church actually did what Jesus said that they were remembering and they were taking the bread and the cup. Most likely it's called the Lord's Supper because it was ordained, why we call it an ordinance, it was ordained by Christ himself. And the whole meaning of it celebrates the Lord's death. It's elements. You have bread. During the time of the Passover, it would have been unleavened bread. I think pointing to the and I don't think that's necessary. You don't, I don't think you only have to have unleavened bread. But the symbolism is there. Uh, leaven throughout the New Testament has an association with sin. We see this in 1 Corinthians 5. It would be representative. This unleavened bread would be representative of the unsin, uh, the, the pure body that would be broken. And so you have the bread, but you also have the cup. Literally, the fruit of the vine. We see this multiple times in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so literally, it's translated the fruit of the vine, 
which is why you may be asking, you said bread and wine. I don't think we serve wine here. We don't serve wine here. And I think, I think there is freedom there. So I'm not quite convinced that whether there's leaven or unleavened, whether it's juice or wine, I don't think we want to uh, kind of jump in because nothing commands or forbids the one or the other. And so it would be helpful here to make clear what the Lord's Supper is not. As we're thinking about what the Lord's Supper is, just helpful to think, well, this is what it's not. And despite what Queen Mary and the Roman Catholic Church insisted then and continue to insist today, the bread and the cup did not transform into the actual body and blood of Jesus after the priest said his consecrating words. And that may not seem like a big deal to you. It was a huge deal, and it is a huge deal. I mean, it's one of the grave distinctions of why the Reformers thought it necessary to break away from the Roman Catholic Church. That view, in case you're wondering and you're hoping to impress someone today, that view that when the priest consecrates and says the prayer, then literally the elements transform into the actual body and the real blood of Jesus. That view is called transubstantiation. Trans being change, substantiation being substance. And so that literally, Roman Catholics believe that there was a change of substance. That these elements became something else. And they became the actual body and blood of Jesus. And understanding that and believing that has grave implications then for the meaning of of salvation. And again, just want to read, I I don't want to try to characterize in any certain way, uh, but I want to, to read what the official Roman Catholic doctrine states here. It says, to receive communion is to receive Christ himself, who has and is offering himself up for us. And the doctrine continues, When we take communion, communion with the body and blood of Christ, it increases one's union with the Lord. It forgives venial sins. It forgives sins that can be pardoned. And it preserves him from grave sins. It keeps him from those that can't be. And so that literally is from councils, It's the ongoing understanding of transubstantiation today. The official position of the Roman Catholic Church. And so I just want to make clear what 288 people thought was worthy to give their lives to. And we stand in a lineage of people that say, no, it can't mean this. And I hope you caught what this doctrine teaches. It teaches that when you take the supper, you receive forgiveness of sins. That you are receiving forgiveness of sins. That that when those words are uttered, those prayers are uttered, that literally there is another sacrifice that is happening again. Christ is sacrificing again. Again, that's why in Protestant churches there's no no, uh, depiction of Jesus still upon the cross. In the Roman Catholic Church, there are. And it's because there is continual, perpetual sacrifice that's having to be made. We believe that that's not in accord 
with what the Scripture said. The Reformers said this cannot be it. They stood and many died to declare that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that someone receives the forgiveness of sins. And again, I'm helped by what J.C. Ryle said, writing about this. He said, this is problematic. Grant for a moment that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice and not an ordinance. He says, if it's a sacrifice, then you spoil the blessed doctrine of Christ's finished work when he died on the cross. A sacrifice that needs to be repeated is not a perfect and complete thing. You spoil the priestly office of Christ. If there are priests that can offer an acceptable sacrifice to God besides Jesus, then the great high priest is robbed, robbed of his glory. And Ryle says, you also overthrow the true doctrine of Christ's human nature. If the body can be in more places than one at the same time, then it's not a body like ours. And Jesus then was not the last Adam in the truth of our nature. You see, the most natural way to understand when someone picks up an object and they say, this is a person's body, is to mean that this represents the person's body. Not that the person's body actually takes the shape and form of the object being alluded to. If the words, this is my body, was intended to mean this bread has turned into my physical body, then I think we would expect the same thing about the cup. And yet we don't. No one presses the issue that the cup turns into an actual covenant. Why so then with the body turning into, or the bread turning into an actual body? And I believe John chapter 6 is helpful here. As Jesus is teaching on this, he calls himself the bread of life. Just kind of a spoiler alert, if you are in the student ministry, you've been walking through the I am statements in the gospel of John this Wednesday... I am the bread of life. So if you really want to go and stump hunter, just show up and state this. I am the bread of life. And Jesus says you can't have life unless you eat this flesh and drink this blood. Eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. You begin to say, well, wait, what, what in the world's going on here? That's what Jesus says in John 6, 53. But if we were to walk back up a little bit to John 6, 35, where he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Meaning that hunger and thirst are quenched in Christ, and it's not because you have to drink his blood, but you believe. You believe on him. You trust on him. And in trusting in him and believing on him, eating and drinking are are images, they're allusions to the spiritual act which draws one near to Christ by receiving him, by trusting him, by being spiritually satisfied in him. We could go, and I could give you kind of other, that's the clear uh, Roman Catholic doctrine of what they understand to be happening in the Lord's Supper. Uh, Luther would come along and say, uh, no, there's no actual change here. Christ is spiritually present. He's in the elements. He's above the elements. He's around the elements, but the elements don't change. Zwingli would then come, on, come alongside and say, yeah, this is a pure memorial. It's purely symbolic. And Calvin would show up and say, ah, 
It's clearly not a change happening. Christ is present, but he's present spiritually. And so while it is a memorial, there, there's a spiritual communion that's meant to take place. And so that's what the Lord's Supper is. We would affirm that this is a symbolic memorial by which there is a spiritual real communion that takes place between Christ and his people and even his people one to another. So that's what the Lord's Supper is. The second question, what are the purposes of the Lord's Supper? What are the purposes of the Lord's Supper? I believe even this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, kind of leaning back, going back to 1 Corinthians 10, I believe we see at least five. So we'll walk through these five this morning. What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? And so maybe a better question to ask, to sort of not just allow this to be something you listen to, but something you experience, whenever you are preparing to approach the Lord's table, what what should be the reason why you're going? How ought you be receiving these elements? First thing, it's to remember the death of Jesus. What are the purposes of the Lord's Supper? The first is to remember the death of Jesus. And this is what we see in verses 24 and 25. That when Jesus had given thanks, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he says, in this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I'm helped by what John Piper says. He says, as we do the physical act of eating and drinking, we are also to be doing the mental act of remembering. So as we are eating and drinking, we are to be remembering. And the Lord's Supper is a stark reminder time after time that Christianity is not merely some new age spirituality. It's not about getting in touch with with your inner being. The Lord's Supper is not mysticism. The Lord's Supper is rooted in historical facts. Jesus lived. He had a body. He had a heart that pumped blood and skin that bled. He died publicly on a Roman cross in the place of sinners so that any who would turn from their sin and trust in him might be rescued from the wrath of God that was rightly deserving to them. And that happened once and for all in history. And so, remembering the Lord's Supper is not about channeling, it's not about dreaming, it's not about imagining, it's not about meditating, it's about fixing our thoughts on a focused, fixed point in history. Remembering this real body that was given. That the body of Jesus was beaten and scourged, and spit upon, and nailed to a cross, and real blood flowed from that cross. And so as we remember, we fix our thoughts on that. In the bread and in the fruit of the vine, we remember a broken body and a shed blood. The roots of this meal find itself in the Passover, and the Passover meal celebrated how the Lord redeemed the children of Israel from their bondage of slavery. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper so that his people would remember how he he redeemed them from the bondage of sin. And so what's the purpose of partaking of the Lord's Supper? To remember the death of Jesus first, second 
to proclaim the death of Jesus. So we don't just remember his death, we're also proclaiming his death. Here's the beautiful thing. Some of you think, hey, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a preacher. Every time you rightly take the Lord's Supper, you are preaching. You're proclaiming. Now, that's not an excuse for you not to be a faithful proclaimer outside of these walls. But rest assured, verse 26 For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The bread and the cup proclaim the saving death of Jesus Christ. The proclamation here is visible, not verbal. It's what Lig Duncan would say. It's the way in which the church, the church isn't just to preach the gospel. The church is also to portray the gospel. This is how the church portrays the gospel in and through the right administration of baptism and the supper. H.B. Charles noted, we say the gospel in a sermon, we see the gospel in the supper. Communion is the church's sermon. We portray the gospel as a church when we administer the supper rightly. We proclaim that Christ gave his body for all who repent and believe. I love, I love how each of those gospel accounts make this clear. When Jesus had given thanks and he broke it, and he broke it. If we were to go back to that night, we may be tempted to think, wait a minute, did Judas break this? Wait a minute, maybe the Roman soldiers broke this body. And the Lord's Supper is a proclamation that says, no, Jesus is the one who broke it. John 10, 17 and 18. He lays down his life willingly. And that's the message that we preach. That death in partaking the Lord's Supper. So we not only remember the death of Jesus... We also proclaim the death of Jesus. The third thing that we purpose of the Lord's Supper is we anticipate the return of Jesus. We anticipate the return of Jesus. And this part of the sermon, I really am just, I've been praying all week. I I pray that the overwhelming weight of what awaits us as believers would just nourish our souls. And we see this in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So yes, we're looking back and we're remembering the blood of Christ, but we're also anticipating the day where we will share the cup of blessing with our risen Savior. Revelation 22.4 says the day is coming where we will see his face. We will be united with a great multitude that is roaring like loud peals of thunder in praise and glory and honor to him. And so when we drink the cup, we're drinking it in anticipation of that day. He's coming back for his bride. And this is why the Lord's Supper is so significant in our worship, because it's it's an essential component of what new covenant worship is. It shows that everything has changed. It's the celebratory expression of new covenant community. I would encourage you to make it a habit before Sunday morning to read your meditation for preparation. 
the email that goes out that just says, this is the text, this is a song, and this is just thoughts to begin to get your heart and mind attuned to where we're going to be. And in the Medford Prep this week, this was a quote, in the supper, we experience a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. The Lord's Supper is an appetizer for the feast that will commence on the day when Christ reunites heaven and earth. We were told, encouraged even in that little uh, write-up, to consider God's promise in Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8. The Lord will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples. Even the veil which is stretched out over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. On that day when he delivers a death blow to death, he will also set before his people a meal. And we will feast. We will feast with the Lord. We taste the future as we rightly partake the supper together now. Just even thinking about the picture in Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16 verses 6 through 9. They poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. And I heard the altar of the Lord saying, Yes, Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous is your judgment. Never mind, I don't think that's the right place. Revelation 16, I'm going to go with Revelation 7, 9? No, Revelation 5. Six through, six through nine, sorry. Revelation 5, 6 through 9, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And we had, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That glorious day... Christ's marriage to his people when Jesus will again drink the fruit of the vine with us. On that day, those who have hungered and thirsted for righteousness will be completely satisfied. Fourth purpose of the Lord's Supper is to commune with the Lord. To commune with the Lord. And if you were to go back to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, I believe we find this here. Is not the cup of blessing which we share a blessing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? 
Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. When believers eat and drink the cup physically, we do another kind of eating and drinking spiritually. This this should be driving in uh, us as we think about how to rightly receive and partake of the Lord's Supper. We eat and drink. That is, we take into our lives what happened on the cross by faith, by trusting in all that God is for us in Christ. We nourish ourselves with the benefits that Jesus obtained for us when he bled and died on the cross. And so when he says, this is my body, it means as you eat this bread, come to me and believe in me. Sit with me at my table and trust me to be your life-sustaining food and drink. This is my body and this is my blood mean eat spiritually, eat by faith. Feed your soul on all that I am for you. Nourish your heart on all of the blessings that I bought for you with my body and with my blood. That's what faith is. Faith is being satisfied in all that God is for us in Christ. Christ has given us the Lord's Supper to feed us spiritually with himself. The the Supper isn't merely an opportunity to reflect on our sin. Yes, reflect on sin. But the Supper should also be where we reflect on his promises. Here's the beauty of the Lord's Supper. As you confess your sins, your sins are brought to the forefront. What happens? As your sins are brought to the forefront, what's, what's before you visibly then begins to inform those sins? You picture the broken body and the shed blood. And Jesus reminds you when the sin comes to the forefront and you look at the body, you look at the the bread and the cup, Jesus is reminding you, forgiven. It's covered. Sin comes to the forefront and covered is what then emerges. You recall a sin from this past week, covered because of the work of Christ. Covered. Because of broken body, shed blood. You said, no, no, you don't realize how horrible it was. No, you don't realize how precious his blood and his body are. You don't get to the beauty of that until you go to the, through the seriousness of reflection on our sin. We reflect on sin, but then we reflect on his promises. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we commune with the Lord by feasting, not merely on the elements, but by feasting on his promises, believing that what these elements hold out to us, we can receive by faith. We feast on forgiveness because he looks at us and he says, your sins are no more. I remember them no more. He says, I look at you and I see the righteousness that I have given you. You are clothed in it. And I remember your sins no more. We feast on forgiveness. We also feast on faithfulness. Because he reminds us, you are mine. You are mine. You are bought at a price and you are now mine. And we feast on just the hope of the new covenant. You remember in Jeremiah 31. We just encourage you this week, go back. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The promise of the Lord is that he will establish a new covenant with his people. And every time you eat and drink, 
when the cup hits your lips, we're remembering the promises of the new covenant. He forgives us now because of his blood. He writes his law on our heart so that it's not duty but delight. He will be known by all people and he will be our God. All of his infinite wisdom and all of his unlimited power is on our side and works for us. All of his greatness and beauty comes to us for our enjoyment. He is our all-satisfying God. And we are his satisfied people. And so when we drink the cup of the new covenant, we're savoring this. We're communing with our Lord. Remembering his promises. And remembering that, yes... Through the work of Christ, he is our God and we belong to him. This is why. This is why this supper is a meal for believers. It's it's for believers only. And so, children, it doesn't mean that your parents are being mean by telling you, to wait, to not come forward, or to pass the elements. It's a protection. This is meant to be shared among those who have turned from their sin and have trusted in the work of Jesus. And the reality is that if you have not trusted in Christ to cover your sins, then you have nothing to feast on. There's nothing for you to partake of. There's no blessing that comes to you from this act. This is not how you receive forgiveness. You receive forgiveness from your sin by turning from your sin and placing your faith in the work of Christ alone, believing that his life, the perfect life that you can't live, is what he did live, believing that the death that he died, the one that absorbed the wrath of God for sin that he didn't commit but that you did, that's your death. Believing that he stood in your place after living the perfect life, died the death, absorbing the wrath of God for your sin. And then on the third day, rising from the dead. Only those who trust, literally put everything about their life on the truthfulness of that message, only they are the ones who have something to feast on. If you are not covered by his righteousness, then you stand under his judgment. You're deserving of his judgment. But the good news is that you too can find refuge in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus today. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I would plead with you, turn from your sin and trust Christ. It may cost you everything like it did 288 English reformers. It may cost you everything, but what you gain is infinitely more valuable than anything you'll lose. I'm served by thinking of this meditation that Ligon Duncan has shared. He said, Satan said in the garden, take and eat. And Adam and Eve took and they ate. And it resulted in their banishment. 
their banishment away from the presence of God himself. But at the table, the Lord invites us back into his presence because of the sinless life of Christ, because of the substitutionary death of Christ, because of the bodily resurrection of Christ. And he looks at us, those who deserve no seat anywhere close to his table, and he invites us to slide our knees up under his table. And he looks at us and says, take and eat. Derek Kidner said it required the sending of the Son of God into this world and his dying on the cross before take and eat became verbs representing salvation, not verbs representing condemnation. Christian, it is astonishing that you and I are invited to slide our knees under the table of God and to take and eat. And the last purpose of why the Lord's Supper is to unify his people. To unify his people. What Paul has been laboring in this section is that from the vertical fellowship between Christ and believers, then there's this horizontal impact. He says it at the end of verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for all of us share that one bread. Paul's central aim in this verse is that we who are many are made one at the table. And he, re- he twice grounds and supports that assertion by referring to our joint participation in the supper. Because there is one bread for all of us share in that one bread. Paul repeats this, seeing that the bread is representing, picturing our unity. And he roots the unity in the celebration of the supper. There is one body because there is one bread. And as we who are many come to the table and we feast on the one body, we are made, uh, feast on the one bread, we are made one body. It seems very significant that in 1 Corinthians, Paul does not introduce the Lord's Supper as part of some systematic teaching on worship, No, rather he introduces it as a way of supporting his rebuke of unloving behavior. He's dealing with selfish behavior between Christians. Lord's Supper is not merely some meaningless religious ritual. It's a call to love. And the Lord's Supper is also an indictment on the loveless. You despise the church, you shame the poor then you don't take the supper. Correct that heart posture and then come and feast. Last two questions that I have are super short. I'm just going to mention because I want to at least put it on the radar. Thinking about the Lord's Supper, who partakes of the Lord's Supper? Who partakes of the Lord's Supper? I think we could kind of build out a framework of three points. One, we would say Christians. This letter is written to the church. If you were to read 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul talks about this participation with Christ or this sharing with Christ and in Christ. Only followers of Jesus who have identified with Christ can participate and share 
into that. But it's not just any Christian. The next layer would be a baptized Christian. So who takes of the supper? Baptized Christians. And so we use this analogy a little bit last week. If baptism is the wedding ceremony, then the Lord's Supper is the anniversary. It would make no sense to celebrate an anniversary apart from a wedding. There's something about putting on the jersey publicly that says, yes, I'm identifying with Christ and his people. And then the Lord's Supper, and that, that's baptism. The putting on the jersey is baptism. The Lord's Supper then is the ongoing identification saying, hey, I'm still a part of the team. Look at my jersey. And the church saying, yes, you're still a part of the team. Look at your life. It matches the jersey that you're wearing. The ongoing identification is the supper. And I just think it's interesting. Some people say, well, Justin, you're making a big deal out of this. And again, this is just where I, I'm looking at the authority of the scriptures. And I, I say, look through the book of Acts. Never do you see in Acts, repent and take the supper. Repent and take the supper. It's always repent and be baptized. And then all of the, the teachings around the Lord's Supper, they're written to churches whereby... The assumption is that those Christians have been baptized in identifying with Christ and the church. And so I think there's even an order here that's important. Not repent and take the supper. Repent and be baptized. And then as you are ongoingly identifying with Christ, we take the supper. Not just Christians and baptized Christians, but baptized Christians who are under the accountability and the authority of a local church. I'm less concerned about whether or not they have a formal membership process. I'm just, the things that we'll talk about next week, about being in some type of accountable relationship with other members and being under the authority and uh, the discipline of the church, that's the aim. We've talked over the last couple of weeks about the keys of the kingdom. They were entrusted to the church to speak on behalf of heaven as that pertains the confession and the life of the confessor. And so the supper then is that ongoing identification with Christ. When we gather around the table, we're exercising this congregational authority and we're proclaiming to one another, brother or sister, if you are at this table, then you can have assurance. The people of God whom you live with week in and week out who are examining your life and your profession are saying, yes, your life reflects something about one who would genuinely believe the gospel. I'm helped, as one person put it, when we gather with our church to take the supper, our brothers and our sisters look at us and they sing, Blessed assurance, Jesus is yours. And so it's not merely Christian, but baptized Christian. Not baptized Christian, kind of in a lone ranger sense. No, baptized Christian that are part we want to avoid the Matthew 7 self-deception. I, mean, I said, Lord, Lord, and I did all of these things. We want to have the accountability of the church who've been entrusted with the keys to speak on behalf of heaven. And the last question is, so how do we partake? And we partake the Lord's Supper with the gathered church. It's what I just talked about. This isn't an ordinance that's given to friends. It's not an ordinance that's given to families or individuals. It's given to the church. Four times in 1 Corinthians 11, this phrase, when you come together, is mentioned. 
And so again, we take this. Uh, one of my biggest regrets, and this doesn't mean that you have to have the regret if this was your experience. One of my biggest regrets is when I got engaged, I thought I was spinning a lot of game, and we took the Lord's Supper on the beach. And since then, I've come to see I, that wasn't given to fiancés. It was given to the church. It's even just the context of wanting to have that clear stamp of authority. This is the church's ordinance. So we, we gather or we take it with the gathered church. Second, we are reconciled to others. The supper requires vertical union and horizontal unity. And so, friends, there shouldn't be times we come to this table with unresolved conflict in our relationships. Don't lie about the Lord and about the unity that this meal is to display by harboring division and bitterness towards others. Uh, Ephesians 3.10 says it's this, the manifold wisdom of God is set on display as the church comes together doing what only the church can do, showing how they are united people where there once were divisions. If I were to ask you, what are the benefits that come to you through the work of Christ? I wonder if you would say, oh, one of the benefits is that I might have the privilege of loving my brothers and sisters in Christ. I believe the Lord's Supper says that is one of the privileges and benefits. And so we take with the gathered church, we take as we're reconciled to others, and we take as we're walking in repentance of sin. Verses 27 and 28 shows the connection between the act of eating and the heart of the one that's taking. The issue, is hand is not, uh, the issue at hand is not being worthy to eat the supper, but eating it in an unworthy manner. None of us are worthy to partake the supper. It's only because of Christ. So to eat in an unworthy manner, which has devastating consequences, if you just read 30 through 34, some got sick and some died. Eating in an unworthy manner means that we fail to appreciate what the cup and, and the bread signify. We fail to feel remorse at our sin. We fail to renounce and turn from our sin. We fail to trust the work of Christ to forgive us of our sin. And so, friends, assess yourself. And so I close this way. The table at Covenant Life is open to baptized believers who are members in good standing of a church that preaches the same gospel that's preached here walking in repentance of sin and in reconciliation with others. And so I pray that you would see from 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 how we get there. And I pray that in rightly partaking and administering the supper, we would showcase the worth and the glory of Christ. And so I'm going to pray the elements today will be passed. And so assess yourself. Much rather pass on the partaking, than to eat and drink judgment on yourself. And for the tender conscience, for those of you that are struggling in sin, but you are willing to forsake it. And you've trusted Christ, you're baptized, you're part of a local church, you have their affirmation on your salvation. You're willing to turn from your sin. The meal's for you. It's for you. Friends, we have the privilege of taking and eating. Let's pray.